goodness, we have a large crowd here today. It's different. I usually sit toward the front and to stand up here and see everyone's here is really encouraging. I have a handout too, so it may not be, <laughs> may not have had enough uh, pot copies. Um, well, good morning. Um, as you know, I'm not the usual person to stand behind the pulpit, and I will say that this morning's sermon is going to be a little bit unusual. The bulletin says that our sermon today is on how to grow and change. Uh, but before we can consider that, I need to explain what will and will not happen this morning in our sermon. Because I'm the director of the church's counseling ministry, Daniel asked me to preach this sermon and to do in-depth teaching on the biblical doctrine of put on and put off, that is put off sin and put on righteousness. Just like we've been talking about for the last month in Colossians chapter 3. Now that doctrine is paralleled by a seemingly conflicting doctrine and that needs to be set forth and explained before we move into our discussion of the put-off and put-on doctrine. Please turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 17 and 18. If you're using the church Bible, that's on page 965. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 17, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. All born-again believers are being transformed right now are being transformed into the image of Christ and who accomplishes this transformation look at the last sentence of that chapter 2 Corinthians 3 for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit if you're a child of God you are being transformed just like we sang in our last hymn and just like we read from our statement of faith, you are being transformed. But this is not dependent on you. Godly change is produced in you by the direct activity of the Holy Spirit. Every one of us is dependent on the ministry of the Holy Spirit to grow and change. This is absolute. It is a rock that we must stand firmly upon and cling to. We don't grow in godliness through our own effort. It is a work of the Holy Spirit. However, God has commanded us again and again and again to diligently work toward godliness. Our last four sermons have emphasized some of those very commands. Do these commands nullify the truth that only the Holy Spirit produces godly change? No, they do not. The Lord is our master. He has every right to demand of us anything he wishes. The fact that he commands us to diligently strive to be godly is his absolute prerogative. 
we must obey. The fact that he himself chooses to produce in us the very godliness that he requires us to pursue is nothing but pure, beautiful grace. So the commands of God and the works of God are not contradictory. They're complementary. They magnify the beautiful and wonderful grace of God. Okay, does everybody understand that? Yes, if nod your head. Yes. Everybody understand that? Good, because from this point forward, I'm going to trust that you understand that it is God, the Holy Spirit, that produces godly change. Please don't forget this, because I'm going to focus the rest of the time on what the Bible says you must do to grow and change. Okay? All right. Let's pretend for a moment. Your friend Mike has been absent from your community group for three weeks in a row. So you call him up and offer to buy his breakfast on Saturday morning. He agrees. At breakfast, you let him know how much you've missed him, and he diverts his eyes. A little prodding on your part finally yields the truth. Mike says, when I'm with our community group, I feel like such a creep. I just can't stand to be there. And you respond, what? What what have we done? Whatever it is, I'm so sorry. And that Mike answers and begins to weep. No, no, it isn't you or the group. It's me. I don't know what to do. It's my anger. In public, I'm okay. But at home with the wife and kids, it's out of control. Sarah swings between worry and fury because I can't seem to control my anger. I've prayed. I've read books. I've tried to use self-control, but I always fail. Now, this is a fictional scenario that I just told. I made that up straight out of my mind, okay? Well, sort of fictional, It's actually pretty real, isn't it? It's pretty real. Turn to Colossians 3.8. Colossians 3.8, that's page 984. Colossians 3, verse 8. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Why did Paul write that? Because anger is such a common problem. So what counsel does Paul give us? Well, I already read it. He says, now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. Go down to verse 12. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Sounds simple, doesn't it? Sounds simple. Just put off anger and put on love, you know, 
kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forbearance, and forgiveness. Simple. No big deal. So then, why is Mike struggling? Well, Paul gives us a clue in Colossians 4.16 where to find the answer. Let's look at Colossians 4.16. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Um, there are other statements elsewhere in the New Testament, um, uh, particularly in 1 Corinthians. I'm going to read four similar statements in 1 Corinthians. You don't need to turn there. I'll just read them quickly. 1 Corinthians 7, uh, chapter, chapter 7, verse 17 only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. And then in chapter 11, verse 16, If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Chapter 14, verse 33, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. And then in chapter 16, verse 1, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the church of Gal churches, churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. From these and other scriptures, we learn that Paul had been diligent to give each church the same foundation of sound doctrine, including consistent teaching on the details of practical Christian living. He also expected his letters to be passed on from one church to another so that they would all receive the fullness of his teaching. Because of this solid foundation, he didn't need to give long, detailed explanations in every letter. He only needed to remind them by means of admonishment and encouragement. So what does that mean for us? Well, those first-generation churches were very faithful to copy and distribute Paul's letters. As a result, we have them right here in the Bible. It's great. In fact, God tells us in 2 Peter chapter 1 that we have everything we need for life and godliness through the activity of the Holy Spirit and careful consideration of his word. That, of course, includes everything we need to put off anger or whatever habitual sin you struggle with Everything we need to put that sin away and put on the godly alternative. So today, we're going to expand our search beyond our study of Colossians 3 to discover the fullness of teaching beneath Paul's admonition to put off and put on. In, Col in Colossians 3, we learned, one, to fix our thoughts on Christ and the glory to come when he returns, to put sexual immorality, anger, and other earthly sins to death and to put them all off and then to put on love and all its manifestations and to renew our minds by letting the peace of Christ rule us, letting the word of God dwell in us richly, constantly reminding ourselves that we are Christ's representatives and by being thankful for everything that happens, particularly in our relationships. 
But the details of exactly how to go about doing those things are not there, not in Colossians 3. So let's go find them. Turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, and let's begin reading with verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. Um, We're going to have to back up a little. Look how it begins. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. So that therefore means we have to back up into chapter 11. Remember that whenever you're reading the Bible, you see that word. You need to back up to find out what he's talking about. He wants, he's telling us what our motive should be. What should motivate us? Well, in ch- the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul has just given us a fantastic insight into the gospel of Christ, into the wonder of the reality that we're saved by grace through faith and not of ourselves. And then eventually, to, he gets to the toward the end of chapter 11 and he just bubbles over with praise and, and astonishment at God's goodness. So let's begin there. Which start? It's actually chapter 11 begins in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This is Paul's reaction to the gospel, and it should be our reaction as well. So what should we do in response? to this wonderful gospel. That's where he begins in chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What should we do? We should worship. But look closely. Exactly how are we to worship? It says that we are to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. We are to worship by offering ourselves each day with each decision, with each action being a conscious choice to please him. In reality, this is the ultimate form of worship, obedience and desire to please him living with that mentality that life is worship. What will that require of us? Well, continue on in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. It's going to require that we have transformed thinking. Amen? Amen? Good, a few of you. Let's try again. Amen? Amen. Good. That's right. Folks, that's not going to happen by just saying amen. All right? Because we have a problem. Fortunately, or I guess the fact we are blessed that Paul told us what the problem is and what to do with it. Not here, but in Ephesians 4. So let's turn to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. 
As I read, I want you to pay close attention. I want you to look for repetition. There's something stated here in Ephesians 4, 17 to 19, that is repeated five times, though with different words each time. Okay? So pay attention and listen as I read. Now this I say, and this is Ephesians 4, starting in verse 17. Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to the hardness of their heart, they have become callous and have given themselves over to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Okay. What's repeated there? What's wrong with the Gentiles? You know, when Paul talks about Gentiles, he's, he's talking about unbelievers, really. It used to be mean non-Jews, but Paul carried it over and kind of expanded the word to mean unbelievers. So what's wrong with unbelievers? It's, it says that they, are, they have futile thinking, verse 17. Then in 18, they're understanding is darkened. Uh, it says they're ignorant. It says they have a hard heart. And then it says they've become callous. So you see, that's saying the same thing over and over again. They've got stinking thinking. Okay? They get wrong thinking. That's the reason in the scriptures so many times it tells us we have to renew our mind. We have to change the way we think. Right? Because when we were unbelievers, we, were, we had totally wrong thinking. And we carry some of that wrong thinking over. Okay? So that's your problem, stinking thinking. All right? You've allowed yourself to get angry, or whatever your particular sin is. We've allowed ourselves to get angry so many times that our conscience has become callous. Now what's a callous? What's a physical? In your skin, what's a callus? God gives us a beautiful gift, the ability to produce calluses. Calluses are there to make it where you can work with that pain, that you can walk with that pain. Calluses on your feet, calluses on your hands, calluses on your little finger right here if you've if you got, you got a paperwork tip job, okay? Or I guess not. Or if you play the guitar, calluses on the tips of your fingers, okay? So you can do these things with that pain. It's the thin skicket. The skin thickens so that it becomes desensitized, and this is a good thing for your skin. It is not a good thing for your conscience. When your conscience becomes calloused, you're no longer sensitive to God's word and God's will. And you know what happens? When that happens, and I'm sure you've experienced this, it becomes really easy to talk yourself into indulging your sin. It does, doesn't it? Why? Let's continue reading. Verse 20. But that's not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the church is in Jesus. Oops, excuse me. The truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Okay. 
Why was it easy to talk yourself into it? Because it had become your manner of life. See that phrase there in verse 22. Your former manner of life. Now, we don't use that phrase in everyday talk, right? Manner of life. You don't talk about your manner of life. We use, uh, the, we use the word habits. You know, uh, it's just, or we, we might say, yeah, I've got bad habits. Or worse than that, we might think, well, that's just the way I am. Can't do anything about it. That's just the way I am. Right? No, it isn't. <laughs> You've created a callus on your conscience. And that's the reason you are the way you are. It's learned behavior. Okay? So that's the problem, this callous. <clears throat> now, one more thing I wanted you to notice in verse 22, and that is um, the word, let's see, verse 22, it says, uh, your former manner of life is corrupt through deceitful desires. The word, if you're using ESV, the word is corrupt, those two words, come from a Greek word, which is actually a present participle in the and the passive voice. Ah, I'm sure all you grammarians know exactly what that means. You know, present participle and the passive voice. Well, it does mean something. It's significant. It means that um, something is happening to you right now. Okay? Something is doing something to you right now. The thing that's happening is that your sinful lusts are corrupting you. And that's what that means present participle and the passive voice. Your old sinful habits, based on your sinful desires, are corrupting you each day you continue to practice them. And that's a big part of why we fail. Until you see your sins for what they are, ungodly, callous-producing habits that are being reinforced and strengthened each time you do them, you will not know how to properly deal with them. But once you understand them, you can put them to death. Remember Colossians 3, back where we were? We were commanded to put those things to death. Right? It was a command. It is a command. Something God requires us to do, not just hope for. Just wishing you were different is not obeying this command. You have to kill those sinful habits. Kill them. Put them to death. Turn to 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. 1 Timothy 4 is on page 992. 1 Timothy 4, beginning in verse 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Okay, Paul says to Timothy, tells Timothy to train yourself for godliness. What does that mean? What does it mean to train yourself for godliness? Well, look at the context. Training and godliness is directly parallel or compared to physical training. And we know what that means. All of us have done that, physical training. I mean, we train ourselves to behave in a certain way to lose weight or to you know, do some athletic event or 
to write legibly, <laughs> whatever we do. We do physical training regularly, right? Yeah, we have doctors in our room. You don't have to write legibly. That's okay. It's not required of doctors. Okay. Well, anyway, um, it requires, we know what physical training requires. It requires a plan with a specific goal and a specific steps to get there. The, the plan and the steps need to be specific. They need to be practical. Really, they need to be measurable. Okay? Physical training also requires diligence. You have to follow the plan, work hard with invariable consistency. It also requires perseverance. You have to never, never, never give up. Spiritual training does, requires the very same thing, a plan with specific goals, specific steps to get there. Very specific, very practical steps, and often measurable things, so you can measure your progress. It requires diligence. You have to follow the plan. You have to work hard with consistency, and you have to persevere. Never, never, never give up. As an example, let's take Mike. You know, Mike's problem? The guy that couldn't handle... Um, he couldn't overcome this propensity to blow up at his wife and kids. And then he kept failing. What do, you, do you remember what he said he did? He said... I've prayed, I've read books, I've tried to use self-control, but I always fail. Is there anything wrong with the things he'd done? He prayed. Is that good? Yeah, that's good, right? That's more than good. That pleases God. We're commanded to pray. That's good. He read books. Now, I don't know whether that was good or not. It depends on what books he was reading. Not, not, all good, all, not all books are edifying. So learning to be discerning about what to read would probably be helpful for Mike. He tried to exert self-control. Is that good? Surely. Self-control is the fruit of the Spirit. Certainly we are commanded to use self-control. However, this is probably where he failed. Because he didn't exert self-control in accord with the revealed wisdom of God. He resolved to stop responding in anger. He may have even gritted his teeth, bit his tongue, but in the end, he blew up again, leaving destruction in his wake and guilt and discouragement in his soul. What had he failed to do? He did not obey, or perhaps he had never been taught, the commands of Colossians 3 and Romans 12 and Ephesians 4 and 1 Timothy 4 and many other passages. He did not see each action of his wife and kids as a God-given opportunity to offer himself in his response to God as an act of worship. He tried to put off anger, but without putting on the godly alternative. And he did not create and consistently execute a detailed plan 
to eliminate the callous. Ignoring God's wisdom virtually assured his failure. So let's pretend we're Mike, and could who can my paper passerouters could do that? Um, let's pretend we're Mike, and make a plan for victory over our anger. And I have given you a piece of paper to help us follow along. Okay, I'm going to wait a minute for for that to happen. I didn't want to distract you by giving this to you ahead of time. I didn't want you to be reading it. Um, as we were talking about the, the, uh, the doctrinal position. Now we're talking about actually using this, okay? Now if you'll look at the chart, this is a chart, and you'll see the columns have headings. The first two from left to right, the first two are to put off and to put on. What I need to stop and what I need to start. The middle column, the middle column says, when do I need to do this? Um, the th- the fourth column is, how, what do I need to renew in regard to renewing my mind, removing my thinking? And then the last column is an action plan. And I put this together for you to take with you. It looks very complicated. I'm sorry. It's not complicated. It just looks complicated, okay? And um, so um, remember the problem. What was the problem? Anger, Right? And not just anger in general, but he was targeting a few people, his wife and kids. They were, get, they were the target. Terrible, right? The people that he loves the most, they become the target of his wrath. My goodness, terrible. Just like us, <laughs> right? All right. Um, now, if, you'll, if, you, if you look kind of across the board here, under the first column, it says, what do I need to stop? I need to stop being prideful. If you remember, when we were reading Colossians 3, we saw that we were commanded to put off anger and all in the various manifestations of anger. And then it said we were to put on humility. Why? Why put on humility? Because anger is almost always a manifestation of pride. You say to yourself, I don't be treated that way. Right? Or if you're a husband, she's supposed to respect me. Right? The truth is, you do deserve to be treated that way. Your, uh, what's the word? The, Theology. What's the word of study of man? Huh? Yeah, your anthropology is messed up. That's right. Your understanding of man is messed up. We are incredibly sinful. You are incredibly sinful. So sinful that God had to send his son to the cross because of your sin. That's how sinful you are. What do you deserve? God's wrath. So you can't, it's really arrogant to say, I don't deserve this. <laughs> it's pride is what it is. And it's the thing that drives your response, your bad response to your spouse or your kids or whoever else. Okay? It's the thing that drives it. So you want to put off being prideful. I deserve their respect. And then you move over one column. I want to put on humility, seeking their welfare. 
Uh, and then the chart goes on down. It's different things I need to put off if I'm Mike. I need to uh, put off taking Sarah and then the kids' love and respect for granted. And instead, I need to put on showing tender affection and appreciation. I need to put off being resentful. And I need to put on being thankful. I need to put on, uh, quit, quit manifesting my wrath and start manifesting love. I need to stop seeking revenge and entrust my family to God. Remember God said, revenge is mine. Right? Thus saith the Lord, revenge is mine. I will repay. Right? We're supposed to entrust well, whoever is grieving us, entrust themselves to, to God. Okay, then how's that going? And below that you see how that's going to manifest. It's going to manifest in various ways. And um, um, for the sake of uh, time, we won't go into a whole lot of discussion of that. I would like you to point out, though, the verses at the bottom. Everything that you do and and thinking through your problem and figuring out what you need to do in order to get rid of the callous and really see change in your life, it all has to be based in Scripture. It needs to be. If you need help, that's what Mary and I do all the time. Help people do this. If you need help, we have four pastors in our church which will help you. Who will help you? You have each other. You should be able to help one another to understand what God says about your circumstances and what God says you should do about it. All right? All right? So that's what you need to do. The middle, look at the middle column. When do I need to practice? In other words, when, do I, when am I most tempted to do this? Whatever it is your sin is. When am I most tempted to do this? For Mike, it says when he's watching TV. Um... Or right when he arrives home from work. Or when they're in the car. These are for my place. I mean, it'll be different for you. Uh, but those are the, play, the times in the day which, when Mike was most tempted to lash out at his wife and kids. You know, he's watching the game. It's the last two minutes, and they come in, and they want to bug you, Right? <sighs> I deserve better than this, right? right? Okay. So you say something you regret later, right? Don't they realize how important this is? <laughs> Not important, okay? So um, then there's a list of thoughts to renew. And you notice the first one? I'm just a slave, a servant of the Lord. I have no rights, Right? I have a mission, not right, and it's not rights I have, it's a mission that I have. I have a mission to love and worship Christ, to love and nurture Sarah, and to lead by example and to raise godly children. And my God-given weapon against offenses is to love the, the one who offends me. Romans 12 and other places. Okay, you, you see the verses down at the bottom. So let's uh, now look at the action plan. You need to do some things, some practical things to help you. Remember, you've been doing this. You've been committing this sin over and over and over and over and over for years probably. Right? 
at least some of the things that some of the ways you sin you've been committing those same sins over and over again for years you've got a tremendously thick callus in this area <laughs> okay so you have to be very practical and how are you going to attack this these are some of the things which uh, Mike might do um, an MPM card um, if you look down at the bottom where it says memorize pray and meditate um, what I do is I for myself and others is I'll write a verse on the front of a 3 by 5 card and then flip the card over and on the back I'll write a prayer from me to God asking uh, confessing my sin and asking God to help me in that particular area relevant to what the verse said and then I carry that that card around with me all the time 100% of the time well not while I'm asleep the rest of the time except during sleep and at least once an hour pull the card out of your pocket or purse or whatever and just simply read it read the verse flip the card over and pray the prayer you do that every hour for a couple of weeks and what that does is that just keeps the thing right in the front of your thoughts right at the very front of your thoughts it helps it's, it's, I find it to be very helpful also it's helpful to keep a journal of failures and specifically why I failed you do that at the end of the day and then of course based on your failures you make changes to your plan right? coaches they call that halftime adjustments right? okay um, those things are preventative when you get into the situation and, and, and you're experiencing the temptation you need something to intercept here's a couple of suggestions for Mike I suggest to Mike that he put a band-aid on his remote finger the finger he uses to change channels and hit mute you know the band-aid helps him remember his commitment to not blow up at his kids right I can tell you if that's not enough you know what he should do <coughs> quit watching TV the Lord says that if your eye is causing you to sin pluck it out right? do whatever it takes whatever it takes so if that's what it takes then do whatever it takes and then you need to know have committed in your heart what you are going to do instead of what you've been doing as a habit you see it there it says I, I ask him okay Mike I'm going to smile I'm going to turn and make on eye contact with my daughter or my wife or my son I'm going to speak their name with affection and then I'm going to listen with my full attention and then I'm going to in my mind I'm going to choose to bless them and then I'm going to do it okay all of that stuff you know part of that just gives you time to get yourself oriented to doing the right thing because if you recall these habitual problems they become almost automatic you need to do something to kind of put the brakes on and give you a few seconds or um, probably less than a minute a few seconds really to orient your mind and your thoughts to do the right thing See, smiling, turning, saying their name you saw it gives you time to 
get yourself in order, okay? It's hard. It's hard. So you need to, you need to help yourself, okay? You need to train yourself for godliness. Train yourself. All right. So that's the end of that. Um, oh, my goodness. My uh, machine has gone black. All right, let's, let's turn back to Ephesians 5. One, just one more thought before we go. Before we close this time together, I want us to go back to Ephesians. There's one more admonition there, the most important principle we'll cover this morning. You know that the chapter divisions are artificial. They were put in there um, after the, long after the scriptures were written. So at the end of chapter 4, you have um, oops, a second here. Wrong chapter. A, at the, a, it moves directly into chapter five. You see how chapter five begins? Therefore, right? The word therefore at the beginning that tells you that the thought is continuing. This thought is continuing. So he says, uh, "We'll read the last sentence of chapter four. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved you and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice for God. Think of that. Look at it. I'll give you a second. Look at it. What did Christ do and why? There are many answers to that, but I'm talking about the answers that are given in this text right here. What did Christ do and why? It says he loved us, right? He gave himself up for us, right? So what did he do? He gave himself up for us. Why? Because he loved us. That's true. But there was an even higher calling that he had, an even higher calling. It says a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Okay. Remember what it says, therefore be imitators of God and walk as Jesus walked. If Jesus is going to live that way, walk and his, his obedience to the Father offered to the Father as an act of worship. And that's the way we live too. It's interesting, that's where we started when I finally got to talking about the doctrine, the first place we went was Romans 12, 1, right? Which says we're to do that. Romans 12, 1 is the command. Romans 12, I mean, Ephesians 5, 2 tells us the same thing. But it tells us this is the way Jesus lived. This is the way we can walk. Walk in the footsteps of Jesus. Live a life, a life of worship. It's that which will motivate you. It's that which will carry you through this process of getting rid of the calculus. I mean, the uh, callous, right? That's the heart. That's the most important thing. If you want to take home one thing from everything we've, besides this piece of paper, the one thing I want you to take home is live as worship. Life is worship. Worship our Lord who loved you and went to the cross for you. Let's pray. Father, Heaven, we do thank you. We are astonished as we are every time we think of it, of your great love and your love that extends so far as to pour out your wrath on Jesus because of our sin so that you could 
robe us with the righteousness of Christ that we might stand before you, that we could come and pray to you now. And Father, we thank you that you've told us that right now you are transforming us. Oh, how wonderful. And that there'll be a day when we will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye and be brought into your presence perfect and holy and without blemish. But Father, I pray that for all of us here, we would take it seriously, your command to us, that we pursue godliness, and that we would do so according